welcome to the NCEA podcast. I'm your host today, Colleen McCoy-Sika, and I'm the Director of Professional Learning for NCEA. And I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, uh, this time, Jill Annabelle, and she's the Senior Vice President of Programs for NCEA. And we are here today to have an exciting conversation with a very special guest, Dr. Carolyn Wu. But first, let's thank our sponsor. For 45 years, Catapult Learning has partnered with Catholic schools and dioceses to provide high-quality supplemental instruction, specialized services, and customized professional development. Today, they work with more than 2,000 Catholic schools across the country to support their academic mission of providing every child with an excellent education. Visit their website today at catapultlearning.com or call 800-841-8730 for more information. Now over to Joel. Our guest today is Dr. Carolyn Wu, and she has received her bachelor, master's, and PhD degrees from Purdue University, where she also served as a faculty member and administrator from 1981 to 1997, um, when she then joined the University of Notre Dame as Martin J. Gillen, Dean of the Mendoza College of Business. During her tenure, the undergraduate program earned number one ranking from Bloomberg Business Week and was consistently noted for its leadership and ethics education. Dr. Wu was elected the first female chair of AACSB International, which is the Accreditation Association for Business Schools Worldwide, and led the launch of the Principles for Responsible Management Program with the United Nations. Dr. Wu then served Catholic Relief Services as their CEO from 2012 to 2016. Catholic Relief Services undertakes humanitarian relief and sustainable development in over 100 countries, serving over 100 million people each year. Dr. Wu was recognized as one of the 500 most powerful people on the planet by Foreign Policy Magazine in 2013, and one of only 33 in the category A Force for Good. Dr. Wu has logged extensive service on corporate Catholic and other nonprofit boards, including the board for the NCEA. And at the Vatican, she spoke at the launch of Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, Care for Our Common Home. Organized two conferences on impact investing and three CEO dialogues on energy transition. In addition to teaching research and leadership awards, Carolyn first took place took first place, sorry, in 2013 Catholic Press Association Awards for Best Regular Column for Spiritual Life. And this next fact is unbelievable to me. She's the recipient of 30 honorary doctorates. <laughs> Please tell us more about that piece in particular and anything else you'd like to share about yourself as we begin this episode. Yeah, Colleen and Jill, thanks so much for having me. I think that bios tend to talk about your professional life, but I just want to tell people um, I'm an immigrant. I'm from Hong Kong. Uh, my parents left everything behind after World War II and after the Communist Revolution in China. So in some ways, I know the lives of people who had to start all over again. I came to the United States uh, at Purdue University. I met my husband at Daily Mass. Uh, we knew each other for seven years before we got married and we've been married 43 years. So we have two sons and they are really wonderful men of faith. And actually of all the things that you said, the most important thing to me is really um, this blessed marriage and children. Thank you for that, Dr. Wu. Um, okay, so let's talk about the book. So the book that we wanna discuss with you today, it's called Rising, Learning from Women's Leadership in Catholic Ministries. And um, you know, Jill and I both 
uh, enjoyed this book tremendously. It, it, it's very personal to us as women in leadership as well. And we recommend it to everyone, not just women in leadership, but anyone that works with women in leadership, which is everybody, right? So uh, let's talk about the book itself. It's divided into sections with one of those sections profiling several amazing women leaders in Catholic organizations. How did you decide whom to include? And did you know all of those people prior to writing about them? So it was a very difficult decision. I could have 60 people, not 16, but I will still be writing and organizing the book at that point. Uh, but my major thing was, first of all, to focus on women leaders at the very top, uh, not because they're the only ones who matter. Uh, we know women labor in the church at all levels. But I wanted to show actually women who broke the glass ceiling because there's a sense that the church truly appreciates women's labor, uh, voluntary labor, uh, labor at the staff level, a half-time employee, half-time supervisors, but that the church uh, may not necessarily uh, empower women with legitimate power and position. So I wanted to look at women who have broken through that glass ceiling. Um, and so that was the first choice. Uh, the second one was that clearly a lot of the early work um, of the church, whether it is building hospitals, schools, um, universities, they were done by women from religious orders. So I wanted to include them, but I also wanted to maintain that proportionate about a fit because most women nowadays, they don't go into vocations of religious life. And I don't want to create the impression that for women to matter, you have to join religious life. So, so I kept that at a certain number. Otherwise I could have the whole book, whole 16 about religious sisters because they have done so much work. So that was another decision. The third one is to cut across many ministries, right? People know uh, women tend to work in K through 12 or that women are in parish ministries. But I wanted to cut across like Catholic social uh, services like Catholic charities or international relief like Catholic relief services, uh, large hospital systems, uh, large universities, uh, major publications, um, women's center, uh, leadership development uh, institutes for Catholic pastors and so on. So I really wanted a cross section of ministries to show that these opportunities are not just narrowly confined in just a few sectors, but that they're really quite broad. So the next one is to pick people from different uh, types of ministries. Uh, I also wanna spread them across different parts of the country, uh, different age groups. Um, to be a leader, usually people are pretty much in their 60s and 70s, but I was fortunate to get a few people in their early 40s. And of course, I wanted to have an ethnic mix. So this is the, the portfolio that I use to get the range of these different people. And I knew, I knew most of them, but not all of them. Good, thank you. Thank you. They were all good choices. And thank you for clarifying how you chose them too, because that's, that had to be a difficult decision to make. Oh, very difficult. Sometimes I run into people and I want to hide. <laughs> I didn't include them in the book. <laughs> 
They'll be in the next volume, right? They'll be in the next volume. I need a volume two. And I will say, and you also, however, you give a nod and they, they do as well. I noticed this about the women in the book is, um, how often they mentioned other women that, that they worked with, that they learned from. And so building up women in leadership, I, I saw as a, as a theme. Um, so although they weren't interviewed, I think there are more women mentioned in here than, um, than probably was directly the, the aim. I, I do want to ask you about, um, at the beginning, you go through some misconceptions and the third one that came up really spoke to me. Um, it is that lay ministers assume their work is less significant than ordained ministers in the Catholic church. And we can all think of examples of that when you're the only lay minister at the table or you're sitting with, um, with bishops and priests and they're making a decision and you need to speak up, but you don't speak up because of this, this feeling. And, um, and further you specify that including women as a baptismal right. So are we seeing improved inclusion of lay ministers and women in particular, or is this misconception perpetuating today? I think generally there has been improvement. Um, and by the way, people say, oh, women have no impact on the church. Women is not important in the church. They say those things because they feel like women cannot be ordained and therefore they're not important. And this totally overlooks all the work that women do outside of ordained ministries. That was actually part of the reason why I wrote this book and said, we do it to ourselves. Why did we allow this type of characterization to move forward? That by our baptism, men and women, lay men and lay women, we are all baptized into the one priesthood of Christ, and that we all have the same responsibility to evangelize, basically to uh, spread the, the light of God and the good news of God, you know, not just by words, not just by sacraments, but also by ministry. Um, Jesus did give us a Eucharist in the Last Supper, but afterwards in his engagement with Peter, when he told Peter very clearly, if you love me, tend and feed my sheep. And how did that part of it get lost? Um, and so I think that this mischaracterization really needs to be looked at. Um, it was in Vatican II. Uh, actually, Pope Benedict also spoke to it, and particularly about the whole concept of co-responsibility. And he's very, he clearly stated, he says, not collaboration. We are talking about co responsibility and he said we haven't done a good job about it and he made clear that ordained and lay ministries they are different in kind but not in degree so how we internalize that misperception is something that we need to step up to and I do believe we're doing much better. I mean, just look at all the different statistics I cited about now women um, really making very key decisions relating to church, church ministries. Uh, they're actually in dioceses and archdioceses. They are chancellors. They are chief financial officers who make important decisions about whether parishes will be open or closed. Um, they are chief strategic officers and so on. So they actually really have strong governance and decision-making place. You know, the Pope just issued an apostolic constitution in March of this year, where we used to, the Vatican was made up of like congregations and councils and congregations can only be led by a prelate 
And now all of this is now, you know, given way to what is called dicastery. And dicastery can be led by anyone. It does not have to be an ordained ministry. I mean, there are some situations where it would require ordination, but it is not kind of like across the board, you know, like congregations must be led by ordained men. So now it opens up the field uh, to lay people, and more important, it basically says, you know, there's uh, sacramental ministries which require ordained people, but the governance <laughs> and the administration part of it doesn't require ordination. And, you know, it seems so simple and logical, but, you know, for centuries, <laughs> for, for centuries of governance, um, decision making as well as the sacramental ministries have all been packaged together um, and assigned to only prelates. So uh, if you ask me, I think that that is uh, quite an earthquake um, in terms of opening uh, the whole participation of lay people in the affairs of the church. I think just listening to what you were saying, and my mind is trying to, you know, go into different, um, different areas, different, um, I don't know, areas of leadership. And I really think that Catholic higher education is doing this very well. So many of the people that that Jill and I connect with all over the country at um, Catholic universities, there are a lot of women in leadership in Catholic higher education. So a shout out to that. Um, let's, so let's, Staying in the vein of college, I, I, there was one part of the book that really stood out to me um, that you shared about your life. And so that led me to formulating this question about um, where is it that you first saw women leading in the church? And how did those experiences or, or, or that experience influence you in leadership and influence your success in leadership? So, um... I actually have very powerful experiences about that before I had terms such as women's leadership in the church. I experienced it before I had the words for it. Um, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I was educated in Hong Kong by missionary nuns. They were the Mary North sisters. They were American missionary sisters. In fact, they were the first uh, women's missionary order from the United States. Um, and they were people with unbelievable courage, vision, and wit. Uh, so the Marina sisters now are over 100 years old as an order. Uh, they only went overseas. Uh, they went to China in the early days and they encountered yellow fever. And some of them were in prison during different regimes. They were in prison at home. Uh, and during the communist revolution, they were kicked out. They came to Hong Kong and other parts of the world, actually, and created schools. Um, and so they created the school that I was in. Uh, and I learned, before I knew I was learning about faith, I thought I was just learning about my teachers. Uh, they were so much fun and always can do. Uh, now, they didn't speak much Chinese, and that's why in second grade I started learning English. <laughs> that's why I could speak English. Because, you know, in those days was why not? You know, these kids could learn better than we could. But they started so many ministries. Uh, when they needed money and didn't have it, they gave up public transportation. 
and created a fund. I mean, clearly I sold a lot of raffle tickets and so on, you know, in Catholic schools to raise money for different things. But they created ministries like for the boat people in Hong Kong. One time there were boat people. And on Saturday, we will join them in a mobile clinic uh, to minister to the boat people. Uh, they created um, centers for the elderly, centers for the disabled. Uh, they started the Center for Justice and Peace. Um, and they were so joyful. There was no sense of like, you can't. Uh, you of course can. And, uh, and to me, uh, I think my faith is always a joyful faith because I was formed by people who had great fun doing their work. Um, and they were, um, you know, they had a great sense of humor, but they were never afraid to take on the authorities. Um, and I, you know, I had 12 years with the sisters. So at first we just thought that they wore strange clothes, right? I mean, you know, the habits and so on. But of course, by the time, you know, you're 15, 16 years old, um, you wonder why did these people leave home? And of course, America was like Mecca to us. Like why would anybody leave America to come you know, and to minister to these little girls with pigtails. And, but the sisters then, you know, kind of explain how, how much they love us before they even saw us, how much they believe that what they did was the will of God and that the will of God was to develop our potential, that we all had potential and that, uh, yeah, they were going to help us with that. But more important, they wanted us to use our gifts to help people uh, who are not as fortunate as we are. So I was getting heavy dose of theology, uh, of Catholic social teaching, um, of the Holy Spirit um, in their lives and in our lives before I knew what I was absorbing. And of course, the Marino sisters, they were into also things um, there were the four uh, women who were killed in El Salvador. Two of them were Marinar sisters. And one of my teachers uh, was the one assigned to follow the case um, in the United States. So that sort of formation, um, I think, took me before, you know, I never aimed to be a leader in the church. I just wanted education and the ability to get a job. So that was the first one. Then when I went to Purdue University as a freshman, uh, the Newman Center took me in. You know, I had no family and so on and it became my family. And that particular Newman Center was run by a very, very progressive priest who really, I think, took in Vatican II. And he was a pastor, but he named a woman as the co-pastor of the Newman Center. Um, and the Newman Center had like 6,000 students who attended mass. There were uh, four priests in residence. There were lots of programs going on. So, you know, I was only 18 years old. I just came from the sisters. Um, I was in the Newman Center and uh, this wonderful woman, Mary Pat, I talked about her in the book. Um, she was the co-pastor of this Catholic Center at Purdue University. Um, and by the way, she was the one who wrote a recommendation for me um, in some leadership uh, sort of sorority. And uh, I never, I was never president or whatever. I was just active in the church. 
um, you know, doing things. So I didn't have terms for it. So I think that my formation took so early before I had categories or knew how difficult it was for women in the church. I had gone through all of this. But then of course, once I went to Notre Dame and started working with a lot of Catholic organizations and Catholic relief services in particular, I ran into all sorts of people, you know, Sister Carol Kean, Sister Donna Markham, um, you know, just left and right, many different uh, women who were doing their work. Um, you know, so it was very natural to me. It was not an aspiration to be a woman leader of the church. It was growing up, seeing how women who love God live their lives and do their work. That's wonderful. And see, you're, you're giving names again. I think we're so good at this as, as women is just lifting those who have brought us here. Um, one of the points that you make uh, throughout the book is, is discussing how self-awareness as a critical skill um, for success in a leader. And self-awareness denotes high emotional intelligence as well. We know that. In addition to self-awareness, what are the most significant qualities of female leaders in Catholic organizations that make them stand apart? So um, I'm going to have to qualify before I go into this. Um, I do, I'm always a little bit allergic and I've taught leadership for 30, 40 years, um, you know, strategy and leadership with my field. So I don't have a gender-based model of leadership. Um, that's why I actually spoke against feminine genius. Uh, the idea that some, there are some endowments that make men and women different. Um, I'm just generally allergic about that. I've seen women who are not particularly sensitive, nor are they good leaders, and I've seen men who actually demonstrate a lot of the feminine characteristics, and Pope uh, Francis is actually one of them. But what is different is that women have different experiences and different roles um, that society gives them. And so as a result, they are socialized differently. Um, I don't know about you. There are not many women who love poker. Um, there are some, you know, I've some women play, but the majority of people who excel in poker, they are men. And part of it is that for women, it's just not very acceptable to sort of be taking advantage of you and, you know, by holding up information because we are socialized to share. Um, in a lot of situations, particularly in Africa or in Asia and so on, women is the social group. They are the ones who have to get along with and take care of their mother and their mother-in-law. Um, they have to stroke the egos of their husbands, their fathers, and their father-in-law. Uh, they're the ones who have to negotiate with neighbors, um, sometimes to you know, share certain things or to... Uh, exchange for different types of services to each other because they don't have a lot of money. They have to rely on the people around them. They're the ones who have to talk to the person collecting rent when they don't have the rent. Uh, they're the ones who have to make the trade-off between do we buy new uniform for this kid or do we buy books and that there's not enough money for both. Um, so women's roles and their experiences are different. 
Um, so Pope Francis in the book about um, uh, the hope, hope to bring book, I probably got the title wrong, where he said, you know, I've worked with the women's, they're so much more pragmatic. They come down and they have, you know, they make decisions, they're not debating theology, <laughs> they just want a solution. Well, a lot of times they represent people, they come back and say, well, did you get that well for us? Well, did you get more ration? You know, are we now less hungry? Uh, did you negotiate so that we could use that well also? So women are often sent forth not to debate theology, but they have to come back with some ways to make a community's life better. Um, and they're the ones who sometimes have to sell their children when they need money for medicine. I mean, these are terrible decisions. Um, and so I think women's roles, their experiences are different. Um, and therefore, if we really want a holistic and sometimes a, a practical uh, way of looking at problems, we need women and we say, Women have soft skills. I don't know whether women are born with soft skills, but I think that because they are in a social milieu where getting along and relying on each other, where you know interdependence is so important um, that they you know have a particular perspective and approach to decision making. writing down the things that you're saying because there, it, it makes so much sense to me. The, um, the idea that women feel as though they, they need to, it is their responsibility to make their, the place, the world, a, a better place for other people. Problem solving, collaboration, relation. I was writing down relationship and you said interdependence, sad interdependence of relationships with other people. Um, that's so important. Um, thank you very much for, for sharing all of that with us. And before, before we um, you know, close our conversation for the day, I just want to give you an opportunity, Dr. Wu, um, you know, to do your, your elevator pitch. Jill and I, of course, think this is an incredibly important book for all people to read. Do you want to just go ahead and make a closing statement um, you know, before we break for the day about um, why you think this book is important to everyone and important to leadership of the church? Um, I think this book is very important because before it highlights the role of women, it highlights the importance of social ministries. Um, you know, our faith is not lived out in words, but it's lived out in how we love each other. And so by showcasing women who do so much of that work, we are also showcasing that ministry. For me, I started this book was because it broke my heart when young women said, I won't have anything to do with this church because it has nothing to do with me. Um, and I thought, oh Lord, this is just not true. If nothing else, we need to correct this. It's um, unfair to the women who've been doing this work, but more important, I don't want people to walk away from the church for a reason that is, you know, maybe very, very partially true. I don't want people to walk away from the church so easily based on these type of throwaway lines. Thank you for that. 
And um, Jill, I, I want to thank you for joining me as co-host today, too. We don't normally co-host podcasts together, but we both wanted to be here with Dr. Wu. <laughs> we did. We did. We both wanted to be involved in this one. So thank you, Dr. Wu, for, um, for spending your time with us. Well, Thanks. thank you. And you could call me Carolyn. But anyway, happy to <laughs> do whatever. Thanks so much for your time. We want to thank our listeners. We want to thank Catapult, our sponsor. And we hope all of our listeners will join us again next time for another NCEA podcast. Have a great day. Go girls.